to overcome, succeed in dealing with a problem or difficulty, defeat of an opponent to prevail, overpower or overwhelm of an emotion, adversity, a difficult or unpleasant situation, used in a sentence, resilience in the face of adversity. I want to break free. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Overcoming Adversity podcast. Welcome to episode number 26 of this lovely podcast of ours. I am one of your hosts, Blake Cohen. I almost said I'm one of your hosts, Amanda Marino. I'm one of your hosts, <laughs> Amanda Marino, and I'm here with uh, Blake Cohen. <laughs> You're so silly. Hi, this is Am- the real Amanda Marino. Um, I love hosting this podcast. It's so great for me and so much fun to do it with you, Blake. I have fun being you some days. I like to pretend I'm Amanda Marino every once in a while and just be like this like female badass and just walk around just <laughs> like clapping back at people. <laughs> do you still um, do you still compete against me in your head? Actually, no. I, I really view us as on the same team now and like you and me against everybody okay, else. Good. Yeah, I, I truly okay. do. <laughs> I still compete imaginary, like I still have imaginary competitions with everybody else, but not necessarily with you. Okay, that's good. I was yeah. very enlightening to hear about that because I never knew we were in competition even before. <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, it, it keeps me going. It's like uh, if anybody who watched the Michael Jordan documentary, it's like he would make up these these competitions in his head or make up that like his opponent said something to him and then use that to fire him up the next game to go just whoop their ass. So that's kind yeah, of what I, I like guess it. what I was doing. I didn't realize it that I'm very similar to Michael Jordan. I love that you are. You look alike too. Um, so so this ways. so our our podcast is sponsored by our company Next Level Recovery Associates. Check us out nextlevelrecoveryassociates.com. We are so excited. We have an amazing guest today who we've really gotten to know much more over this past year. But you know, always like brings a smile to my face when I see him. It's just a super you know passionate guy about what he does and really just has like came in and brought himself into a large group of people and really just made himself known. And I, you know, I really admire that. So we have George Bullock, the fourth, <laughs> AKA Georgie Brooklyn. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me guys. It's uh, that was, that was a nice introduction. And uh, you know, I, it's been a pleasure to get to know you guys, you know, on, on a deeper level last year, you know, sort of, you know, working together in some capacity with you guys. And, uh, it's, uh, it's just really cool to, uh, to be here right now because it's just mind blowing to think some years ago that I would be sort of even doing half of like what I do today, you know, and it's, it's really humbling more than anything. So yeah, you know, I appreciate you guys having me. No, I, I, I understand that feeling. And dude, I, I will tell you that, and you may know this or not know this or may feel the same or not, probably not. But I, you're one of those people because we run, for those who don't know, we sort of run in the same professional circles. And we would see each other at professional events having to do with substance use disorders or mental health or another center is opening up or whatever it may be. Someone's having an open house or some type of networking event. And you're one of those people that even though we've never been, I would say, personally close, you're one of those people that I was always felt comfortable with and refreshed to see just because you've sort of always been yourself. You have a very 
sort of gentle demeanor. And I mean that in a great way where you're just very comforting to be around uh, as opposed to some people in this industry where I just didn't feel comfortable being around. So I don't know if that means we're cut from the same cloth or whatever, but I, I, it's always a pleasure being around you and talking to you. Yeah. And, and I Wait, really just say that. it. The dude has swagger. All right. <laughs> He's <a good> swagger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. Uh, that means a lot to me. And that's, you know, I, I do my best to, to try to be that way. Um, you know, especially in the industry we work with, it can be very volatile in, in certain ways, but, um, you know, I just try to, I just try to be myself and that's not easy a lot of times, but it's, um, it's always worth it. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It always works out better that yeah. way. Yep. For sure. Well, we're excited to have you on, as Amanda said, and I, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about you and hear some more about your story. And I'm excited for our listeners as well, uh, because you've been through some, some traumatic uh, adversity that I think a lot of our listeners are actually going to really relate to. And it's interesting the path that it took you on and where all of that has led you today. So if I ask you the question, what type of adversity major adversity have you faced in your life? What would be the answer to that? Well, it, it goes in, I would have a, a top three per se. Um, and obviously I'm someone in recovery. So, you know, addiction was, was one of them. Um, but long before addiction, you know, which probably led to addiction in, in certain ways was um, I, I experienced a significant amount of loss early on in my life at a very vulnerable time. Um, you know, and what that looked like for me was losing my dad early on, you know, and it happened for me when, when I was 10 and it was, it was a very sudden sort of death. And to give everyone a little bit of background, you know, I come from a very loving family, you know, I had a very functional upbringing, you know, and I was, I was close to my dad, you know, I was very close to my mom, even a little bit closer to my mom, but still very close to my dad. And my father was diagnosed um, with terminal stage four small cell lung cancer. Mm. And they found out about a month before he passed away. So basically the doctor told him, um, hey, you have stage four small cell lung cancer. Don't bother doing chemotherapy because it's just going to make your quality. It's going to help you live longer, um, maybe by a few months, but you're literally just going to wither away. And there's not much that, you know, we can really do for you medically speaking. So. Wow. What a, what a thing yeah. for a doctor to say and how difficult it must be for the doctor, but I can't even imagine what it's like for your family to hear such devastating news. I mean, putting myself yeah, in your dad's, funny. in your dad's shoes, I'm just thinking like, what is it like hearing a, a, a person say that to you? Like, this is your last month. Yeah. And, and you know, I wonder that all the time. Um, and I really, you know, as, as, as a good, you know, addict or alcoholic, you know, I spent the majority of my life blocking, you know, this out. So even talking about it, yeah, I'm literally sitting here and, and you know, different memories are sort of, you know, coming, coming to the surface. But, you know, I, I remember that I wasn't told about it you know, until the night that my father went into the hospital. And I know that from everything my mom tells me, my dad handled it in a way with such acceptance um, that she couldn't even believe it. You know, she was obviously devastated and obviously he was too, knowing he was going to die. But there was, there was a calmness, you know, um, some sort of higher power maybe or, or whatever it is that, that sort of entered him and, and he knew that 
his son would be in good hands, you know, with, with my mom. But the night yeah. before, yeah, yeah, the, the night before he, um, he went into the hospital, it, it, it's crazy how life works because I was at my aunt's house and I asked my mom, I was like, hey, can, you know, I stay over here? And she was like, yeah, of course. So my mom went home and, and, you know, her and my dad were watching Gladiator. You know, my dad died in 2000, January 2002. Gladiator was still pretty big. I don't know if he, it had come out around that point or whatever it was, but she was watching it with him. Um, and he turned to her and he said, I think this is going to be my last night at home. Um, he knew something was, was you know, going to happen. And, uh, he could feel it. Yeah. He literally could feel it. Um, and, you know, my mom just stayed with him. And around 2 o'clock in the morning, they were still awake. And, no, actually, they, they were asleep. And he, uh, he ended up, um, the cancer had spread to his pancreas. And he had really bad pancreatitis or whatever. So he developed this really bad shooting pain. And that night, you know, he called it. They, uh, they called the ambulance and he went into the hospital and um, he almost immediately went under. And I got the call wow. the next morning. And, you know, my, my mom was like, you know, honey, you know, your dad's in the hospital or whatever it was. And as a 10-year-old child, mind you, this is two weeks before my 11th birthday. And Yeah. Well, you're a baby. Yeah. Yeah. I was, that's what I was saying, where it, it was such a vulnerable point in my life, you know, where I was old enough to really see and, and, and feel the trauma to an extent, um, mm. you know, unlike kids who lose their, their parents and they never really got to know them. But I was also young enough where I hadn't experienced all those years and I hadn't gotten that, that sort of, um, you know, development with my father. So, right. You were sold short. You were, you were kind of, kind of, you know, you didn't get a lot of time with them. Not enough, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And I remember my, my dad was a, was a big, like burly dude, very, very like masculine, very <laughs> strong. And I remember going into the hospital, you know, to see him. And at this point I didn't understand the severity of it and he was intubated. And obviously seeing anybody intubated is, you know, first time in my life. I never saw anyone intubated either. But um, he was completely helpless. And I remember it as clear as day, the shock that went through my body, seeing someone who the last time I saw him was completely normal um, and completely himself, just like I had known him for the almost 11 years prior. And, you know, he couldn't speak. He was in a coma, a medically induced coma. And I was just baffled, absolutely hmm. baffled. Um, yeah, so... He, he came out of it for a little bit after that, but um, I remember he was still intubated, but he was conscious at this point. And the last memory I have with my dad was sitting in that hospital room and he wasn't able to talk because he was still intubated, but he had a, a notepad that the nurse gave him and he was just out of it on, on all these meds. But he wrote on that notepad the best he could, um, I love you. Hmm. And, and I... I remember just like sitting there, like it was the, it was the moment when I realized like my, my dad's going to die. Like, and, and it just, it rocked me. It absolutely rocked me. And, um, you know, that my mom tried to stay positive and stuff like that, but she pretty much alluded to the fact that like, you know, we, we don't know how much time we're going to have with him. So a few days later, uh, we were at my grandma's house. We were staying with her cause my mom didn't want to be alone. And it was 7.30 at night, and it was a Sunday, January, yeah, January 13, 2002. 
and the phone rang and my mom ran to the phone and she later told me that that like we have this this human you know intuition where uh you know she she knew that was going to be the phone call and i just heard her start hysterically crying and i knew that that was the call you know that that my that my dad had died so i um in that moment, you know, I, I hugged my mom and I, I didn't, I don't know if I started crying. I, I can't remember, you know, too, too vividly at this point, because I blocked a lot of it out. But I do remember promising myself that I would do everything in my power to make sure that my mom was okay. You know, because I, I, I knew how hard she had been taking it. And I remember asking her and I said, you know, I guess as like a, you know, a fearful child, I said, you know, are, are we going to be okay? And, you know, she uh, looked at me and she said, you know, of course we're going to be okay. And, you know, I, I made that decision at that point, like whatever I have to do to sort of like make sure we're okay as much as I can do as an 11 year old, you know, I absolutely will. So, you know, I, I ended up um, going to a place where, you know, nothing sort of mattered and I, uh, I wanted to block out any emotion that, that I possibly could, which is exactly what I did. So, you know, yeah. from, from that point on, things sort of uh, went off the, uh, the deep end emotionally, I guess you could say for me. And um, Well, you, George, you went from like, you know, trauma to protective mode, you know, right away. You didn't have like an in-between of like grieving, healing. You went right away to protect your mom, you know, you didn't have time to get to heal at all which is noble, very noble to do, you know? Exactly. You know, and it was that, that defense mechanism, you know, that, that I guess I developed, you know, where it it all just happened in like the blink of an eye. And, um, you know, from there, I, it's, it's strange because I was always, you know, I was involved in sports since I was four years old. You know, a lot of these things I partook in, you know, my dad was a part of, so he would come to my games and stuff like that. and, And he would come to, you know, I remember him at like my first grade or kindergarten graduation, you know, whatever the situation was, um, you know, he was always a part of things as much as he obviously could be. And I realized, you know, when I would show up at baseball games now, you know, everyone else had their dad there, but, but I didn't, you know, and that sort of was, you know, a catalyst to me not really feeling a part of, you know, there was something different now about me than there was about other kids. You know, and I grew up in a family to get to give everyone a little bit of context where I was really around mostly women. And, you know, my my mom has two other sisters, you know, my dad's side of the family. um, They love me to death. They were awesome. But I saw them a lot less than I saw, you know, my um, my mom's side of the family. So I have the, the, the males in my life were my dad, were my grandfather, who I love to death. Um, but he's an old school Puerto Rican guy, you know, there was a cultural boundary there and I couldn't relate to him the same way. Um, and then right. my uncle and my uncle, um, was through my aunt marrying him and what an amazing human being, you know, he was, and he was incredibly important as uncle Bob. Um, Aww. and, and he uncle. really, uncle Bob too. He, he, I'm sure he's great because <laughs> Uncle Bob seems to seems to you know trend as uh, some really really special people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you know, so Uncle Bob sort of you know took this place in, in a lot of ways, and you know we had season tickets to Yankee games, and we would go do that, and it really sort of like took me out of myself in a lot of ways. 
um, which is what I needed, you know, and he showed me he was a successful, you know, lawyer. He was an incredibly compassionate, loving human being also. And, you know, he, he, he like took that place without taking that place, if that makes, you know, sense. And, um, right. He didn't replace your dad, but he, he still, you know, stepped in to, to be a solid male figure for you. That was exactly it, you know, and, and he was what every role model sort of should be, you know, someone who loves his family more than anything. It, very similar to my dad in a lot of ways, um, you know, and my uncle to, to sort of, you know, give you the idea uh, was ultimately when I was my father died right before I turned 11. When I was 14, my uncle, he was 62 at the time, I believe, was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer. They found a huge mass in his brain. Um, mm. They removed it successfully, but I believe the cancer had spread. And at this point, uh, I'm fuzzy on the details because now, as I'm experiencing this as a freshman in high school, I'm like, oh my God, here we go again. You know, like this is literally just another loss and I have no idea how I'm going to deal with it, you know? And my little cousin was six months old at the time. You know, my, my aunt, you know, got, got pregnant, um, you know, and they had my little cousin, her name's Heather, and she's an absolutely incredible, incredible girl, um, you know, to this day. But she was six months old, you know, when, oh. when he passed away from that brain cancer. And uh, it, it was, I, I remember, I don't know if my mom said it or someone in the family said it, and, you know, they were just like, are, are we cursed? Like, what, like what is going on? Like, how does this happen to, to really, really right. high quality people too? Um, yeah. So it, unfair. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you can go on that one, you can go on that unfair and, you know, like you can really spiral out on that one. I, I can relate with my trauma to that, you know, really letting that be, well, look what happened to me. All this stuff happened to me. So I'm meant to be messed up. Yep. Yep. And you know what? It, it, it's funny because it, it was almost paradoxical in a way where I didn't want pity from anyone about it because I was too proud for that. But deep down, I really did want pity. You know, I really did want people to feel bad for me. And I wanted to be able to use like my life circumstances and those major losses as like an out, you know, yeah. like, okay, now I can sort of, you know, justify the way I act based on the circumstances that I dealt with in my past, because no one's experienced this before and no right. one's gotten through this before and stuff like that. So that, that stinking thinking that we learn about, you know, in sobriety, especially, um, you know, really started to take a hold at that point. So, you know, from there, uh, this was really one of the major parts of my story and how I got into addiction, which we all know, you know, everyone's story and addiction is similar when you, you get down to the nitty gritty of it, you know, is that, uh, you know, we developed a problem that we couldn't manage on our own. But, um, you know, I started to look for these male role models, you know, in my life, you know, in the street, you know, where I grew up, you know, and I'm, I'm from, you know, Brooklyn and it's a very, if you're from like an inner city sort of setting, it's, it's different than like the suburban feel. So I would hang out in parks and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, my friends, I grew up with my entire life and I love them to death, you know, but, um, they weren't exactly the best influences either. So, you know, I saw the kids, you know, in, in the park and in the street and all those things. And, you know, they did what they did to, 
you know, make money or, right. or you know, find women and all those things. And with that came drinking and drugging. And, and I thought that that's what, um, you know, being a man really looked like, you know, paying for your own stuff and all those things. And the way they did it was a way I thought was the right way to do it, which really wasn't. And I never had. Well, it was appealing. It was appealing, you know? Very right. much so. And you sort of had the, um, the limited experience of seeing older male adults functioning in life and what it, what it means to have that male role. So to you, it was being, having money and being a provider. And that's really the gist of what you understood at that point because you had lost your male role models so early on. That, that's exactly what it was, you know, and on top of that, I realized that, hmm, I really don't have the level of accountability anymore having a single mom that I would have if I had, you know, my dad in the house. And whether that was conscious or subconscious or unconscious, I knew it on some level. Um, and that was sort of like, you know, in my mind, my go ahead to live my life the way I wanted to, because I probably wasn't going to face the same repercussions um, that I would have if I had, you know, a dad at home who was going to be like, listen, if you want to do what you want to do right now, then you could, you know, excuse my language, pack your shit and leave type of thing. Um, Cause that's what my dad would have done. You know, my, my dad was, was a, a, a no, he was compassionate, but he was a no mess around guy at the same time. So I, um, you know, I developed these relationships and, you know, from there, all of our stories sort of, you know, are, are similar in a lot of ways when it comes to, to drinking and drugging. But, um, you know, I, I sort of went off the deep end at that point, you know, and it became, it started, you know, my first drink was when I was 12 years old, you know, a year and a half after, you know, uh, my, my father passed away and it didn't escalate right away, by right. Any means, but it, uh, by the time I was right around the time actually that my uncle Bob died, maybe a little bit after, you know, I, I was, you know, smoking weed or, or doing what I was doing, you know, every single day at that point. Oh. And, uh, well, cause normal 12, normal 12 year olds that haven't gone through something. Don't just go like drink. You know what I mean? Like I also tried <laughs> substances at a very young, very young age. And I think my mom said I chugged a beer at four and then at nine, I, I smoked marijuana, you know? That's so impressive. that, that's that, well, that's because of the trauma I'd been through, you yeah. know? And, and, it, you know, and on your the dad thing, you know, I, I also lost my father and, you know, I was pregnant with my daughter when it happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that whether it's sudden, whether you're prepared, it's like, there's like no right way. And, you know, I only had six years with my dad, kind of similar to you because I didn't meet him until I was older. So, you know, it's, it causes a lot of not having that father figure. And I would assume more so as, you know, as a, a young man, you know, really missing that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly the, you know, my truth, you know, when it came to that. And, uh, I was always able to justify sort of my behavior to an extent because I was always, you know, and I was a very good student. Um, my mother worked to the bone. She was a teacher. Um, so she didn't make a ton of money by any means, but she saved everything she ever had to put me through a private high school, give me the best opportunity that I could possibly ever, you know, ask for. Um, and all those things. And, and, you know, I played baseball and I played basketball and, and I was, I was a decent athlete and I was a, a an above average student. And, uh, you know, when, when I went away to college, you know, my mom, as a result of my dad's death sort of became a helicopter parent in a lot of ways, you know, sure. just as a result of her own trauma, you know, which, which I understood, you know, on, on that inherent level, you know, but I, I also, knew that I wanted to, to sort of get away from that, 
because I always had the utmost respect for my mom, but I, I never really wanted to sort of, you know, constantly be around and all those things. So going to college was really my out, you know, which I did. And I went to school at Temple University in Philadelphia, which was just far enough away where I could run back if I needed her, but far enough away where I, w- I wasn't under the watchful eye anymore, you know, and, and that was something that, uh, you know, that was great at first and then ended up, you know, not being so great. Right. But, it ended up being a catalyst to you, to your independence, yet at the same time, a catalyst to an addiction problem. That was exactly yeah. it. You know, it, it really was. And my, my first two years of college, th- things were okay. You know, I, my grades weren't as good as they used to be, but, you know, I was still, you know, getting my credits and stuff like that. And then, you know, my, when, when certain I, by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Certain, certain by. Yeah. And then my, my last two years, you know, I talk about this all the time, you know, when, when I share at meetings, but you know, my transcript, I mean, if you looked at it, I went off the deep end. I accumulated six credits in the last two years of college and that's four full semesters on a full-time wow. course load. Um, you know, so it's it just a medical withdrawal, withdrawal, you know, whatever, incomplete D C minus, and I almost failed out. And, um, at that point in my life, you know, my father, you know, was a teacher as well. So education was always something that was very, very, very important to my family. And I, I no longer had a desire to, to sort of, you know, be in school. And I no longer had a desire to play sports and I no longer had a desire to do anything. Um, except fulfill my day-to-day needs. And, and as we know, you know, drinking and drugging is li- it literally becomes a full-time job. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and not even school could sort of, you know, replace that for me. And I was always someone who really enjoyed learning. So, you know, it, it literally took precedent over everything else in my life up until, you know, um, you know, getting sober. But I, I do remember, you know, just hitting that emotional bottom that we all hit and going through through all the things that I went through, and you know, I had five or six seizures as a result of withdrawal. Um, you know, drug dealers trying to kill me. You know, like all, all sorts of the crazy stuff that we were going through. And I looked, I looked at my life, you know, in moments of clarity that I had, and I was like, "How did I get to this point?" You know, I I really have no idea how I got here. It all happened so so fast, you know, seemingly. Yeah. And yeah. I looked. I look back several times and I, and I thought about, you know, my dad and I thought about, you know, how my life could have been different had he, you know, not passed away or whatever the situation was, had my uncle Bob not passed away, what would have been different in my life until I came to a point where I just realized that at this point, it doesn't matter. Um, right. but you're, you're about yep. to die. <laughs> so you, you, you need to get it together or, you know, that's going to ultimately be your fate. So at that point, I, um, you know, it was my senior year in college. And uh, I remember the day, literally, the, April 17th of 2013, I, um, I drove home from Philadelphia in my mom's Buick LeSabre that she would let me take to Philadelphia. She, she pretty much gave me her car. And she bought like a new one. And um, the damage I did to this car, my God, I, I, the story I could tell you guys, I'm not going to take up all the time, but what <laughs> I did to this car, it's unforgivable. But, um, you know, I, I showed up at that door on, I think it was a Tuesday and my mom is like, you know, what are you doing here? And she, she saw the look in my face and I didn't have to say anything else. You know, I, I was, you know, I don't know how many pounds underweight, 
when I went into detox, uh, I'm about five foot 10. I weighed about 130 pounds. Um, I was a skeleton, you know, and, and the, the damage that I had done to my brain, you know, from, from the Xanax abuse, especially, um, you know, I couldn't remember things anymore. Six years, you know, I just celebrated six years and six years later, I find myself not really being able to remember certain things, you know, from my past that I was like, how, how don't I remember that when people tell me, you know, my friends tell me about things we used to do. And I was like, I don't remember those things. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's like you have a blur of many years of your life. And it's like, you don't know when it started, when it ended. And you look back at hindsight, and it's like, what just it's like a whirlwind once you kind of come to. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, and especially college, my college years were, you know, almost completely a blur, you know, and the relationship. Yeah, I have 10 years of that. 10 years yeah. of a blur. Yeah. Don't remember. I mean, I remember, and then they come, everything, sometimes they come up once in a while. I'm like, oh boy, some things I don't want to remember. Yeah. It, <laughs> but yeah. It, it's mind blowing. You know, it, it really is when I think about it, you know, but I, I, after that, I tried a couple of outpatient programs in New York. And if anyone who's listening to this knows about treatment in the state of New York, oh my God, it, it's, it's an absolute disaster. And yeah, yeah we, we get a lot of people referred to us that are, um, you know, that, are in the New York area. There's not a lot of resources. No, no, they're not. And the ones that I went through, you know, I was court man. I was, I wasn't court mandated. Everyone in there was, was court mandated. So it was people sort of just showing up because like they had to be there. And, um, they, long story short, there really wasn't anything solution focused, you know, it, it was sort of just do your time type of thing, you know, to get off probation, whatever it was. Um, but my mom gave me an ultimatum, you know, and she basically said, look, you, you, you can't stay here if you can't stay sober, you know, as much as I love you. And, you know, God bless her heart. My, my mom was always my biggest enabler. Um, you know, she just didn't know, you know, what, what it took for someone to get sober. You know, I, I didn't grow up around people who really knew a lot about alcoholism and addiction outside of my dad. You know, my dad's side of the family was plagued with it. You know, my father found right. her dead with, you know, a needle in his arm. You know, when my when I was like a baby or like maybe right before I was born or something like that, you know, and they had. We were just talking about that earlier, George, about like the, um, you know, how many so many families don't know anything about addiction and they get like overwhelmed and they don't know what to do and where to turn and they go into a panic. So, you know, that your family, that your mom's side of the family didn't know that. That's so common. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was that was exactly what the case was. You know, my mom just sort of like threw her hands up and she's like. I, I don't know what to do with this kid. He, he was raised in, in a loving home. He was given everything he, he you know, ever, you know, needed and most of what he wanted. Um, uh, she always thought, you know, her, her thought process, like, where did I go wrong? And I always knew, I was like, mom, like, it, it's nothing you did wrong, you know? And I don't, I don't know if it's the nature of the nurture argument, you know, whether, you know, I have the genetic predisposition or, you know, if my environmental circumstances sort of played into it, I like to think it's a little bit of both. Um, yeah, but, I think so. I think so. And then she ended up telling yeah. me, like, as much as I love you, you know, I, I can't watch myself. You know, you're, you're going to have to like go away if you can't get it together. And I continued, Absolutely. you know, I continued to use and she didn't catch me. I was pretty good at hiding it or at least so I thought, but I had a moment, um, one of those moments of clarity that I was talking about, you know, and, yeah, I think it was one of the first times that like God really came to me before I could help myself, you know, and I, I was in my house and I was, you know, inebriated and I just stood up out of my bed and I walked over to my mom and I, and I, I like put my hand on her shoulder and I was like, 
I didn't even want to say it, Amanda and Blake, but I literally, something forced it out of me. And I said, please send me away. I need help. That's literally all I said. And we were on the phone with, you know, a treatment center 10 minutes later. Wow. And yeah. (laughs) So you're, you know, it's funny, man. Usually I chime in a whole lot more, but for some reason your story made me emotional. And I don't know if it was the details with your dad, but it, it sort of hit me in the gut. Um, and it's just amazing the trauma and just putting myself in your situation and your parents' situation of trying to understand what that must have been like for you as a kid. I'm sorry, I'm like, I don't know why this is making me emotional. Um, but it made me it, emotional too. I got it. Just understanding what it must have been like for you to go through that and then trying to figure it out on your own, um, even though you had your mom around and everything, it just must have been so hard. Yeah. In the interest of moving forward, I'm curious then, okay, so you went to treatment now. It sounds like you you were able to get treatment now and and go away for it. Mm -hmm. So tell, what did your recovery look like? What did it look like, the overcoming part? How did that unfold? And what what did you have to do to get to a place where you can cope with your past and cope with your addiction and, and everything that's led you to where you were at then? Yeah, of course. You know, for, for me, I, um, you know, when I came down here, I, I really wanted to, to get better. You know, I, I will say that was my motivating factor and sort of like being able to overcome almost anything that I've overcome in my life, um, was really knowing that I wanted to do it and practically applying what I had learned from others into doing that, you know, and I spent time down here you know, a couple of years worth messing around and not taking sobriety seriously or anything like that. Um, and not working on, you know, the, the loss of my dad, my therapist was always huge on the fact that so many of my issues in my life came from, you know, a sense of abandonment, you know, and, and losing, you know, the dad and losing, you know, my, my uncle and all those things. But for me, taking it, it seriously, right. And finding people who were like-minded, you know, I remember in one of the, 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 the podcasts I listened to with the gentleman who, who lost his leg, you know, I, I heard him talk about sort of, you know, fellowship and, and people around him, you know, who, who lifted him up, you know, and that's what, what my experience was, is that sobriety, I didn't necessarily get it through osmosis, you know, healing from the losses in my life. I didn't get through osmosis. Didn't, I didn't just wake up one day, you know, and some, you know, my therapist told me something and, oh, wow, it clicked. And now, you know, I'm better and I'm cured. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, it it was, it was a process and it was a process for quite a few years, you know, um, of not really acknowledging the significance of the loss in my life that ultimately led to, you know, addiction and stuff like that. But the more work I did and the more open I became to these ideas, the easier it was to acknowledge. And once you can acknowledge, you know, in my experience, at least, um, you know, once you can accept that like these things played a huge role and you can figure out how they actually, um, you know, affect different parts of your life, the easier it becomes to heal from them because then, then I had a plan, right? Then I could look at, at, look at it and say, oh, I react, you know, um, this way in relationships because I'm afraid this person is going to leave me at some point or whatever it was, you know? So once I reached a point of, of acceptance of, of the, you know, the stuff I had been through, you know, I was able to really consciously like work at it, you know, and, and that 
played a role in not only staying sober, but really growing, you know, as a person. And you make, that you make such an important point there of, and we talked about this before we started recording, but that's addiction is usually a byproduct of something else that's occurred to us. And we use substances to self-medicate essentially. And so many people, cause I'm sure in the moment, you never even thought about it. You thought you just liked getting high and then you got carried away and you didn't understand why you continue to behave in a certain way. And so many people, including myself, can truly relate to that of not understanding. I remember when I first was getting sober and they were trying to dig deep. All these therapists were trying to dig deep into the, what's going on with me. And I'm like, guys, I don't care about why. Just tell me how to stop. Yep. And it had to be explained to me like, no, we need to understand why in order for you to understand why you need to stay stopped. Yep. Yeah. And George, your story of, you know, your part about like your awareness now where you can kind of piece it all together, like why you did what you did and, and specifics like that. Like, you know, I, I just think that it's just crazy how many parallels there are with your story, Ryan. And I like, like Blake can relate, you know, while you were talking about losing your dad, I was closing my eyes and I was thinking about the last time I saw my dad, you know, and, and it was, you know, I just brought me back. So I, I really appreciate your vulnerability. Yeah, no, no, of course, you know, and, and what Blake, what, what you said, you know, it's so important too, you know, that we, we, I never fully understood, right? Like I, I remember sitting with my first sponsor and reading the big book and in the big book, it says women, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, which was very true, you know, to me in, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, the majority of us, I feel like, you know, there's a lot more to it than simply the fact that, you know, I drink and drug, you know, because I like the effect produced by alcohol. And I couldn't really sort of do the emotional sobriety work in my life until I really acknowledged, you know, these things and not just the loss of, you know, my dad and, and you know, stuff like that, you know, but, but all the things that sort of happen to us, you know, as, as life goes on. But what people don't realize too, is that even if, if your addiction is based in an initial trauma, being addicted to something creates more trauma because of the things that we have to do to support our habit ends up creating more trauma, which becomes a vicious circle or cycle of us continually using to cover up more and more trauma that we were creating on our own. That, that's exactly it. You know, that that's exactly, and that's exactly my experience. You know, it, it's literally just a vicious circle, you know, and, uh, I'm just, I'm just grateful that I was able to sort of, you know, put a, put a stopper in it. And I always say this, you know, anniversary nights when I, when I pick up or when I speak at a meeting, you know, the, the sort of the rebound and the recovery from, you know, my own issues and my own things really isn't to do that much with me. You know, it's really to do with other people, you know, and I stress that so much because I know nothing original about getting better and healing from loss you know, and getting sober and all those things, you know, that, that overcoming adversity, you know, has to do with, you know, all these things that I've learned about getting better and about overcoming sort of trials and tribulations like we all do is nothing that I invented. You know, this is literally all stuff that was taught to me through people who were placed in my life um, that gave me a fighting chance. So what's your life so what look do you, like? Oh, go to, ahead. Uh, no, I'm probably asking the same thing. question. Then you ask it. <laughs> no, I was going to say, so what does it look like now today, like in the giving back and, 
and what do you do now to kind of, you know, now that you've gone, you, you had the, that, the trauma, you know, and you went through addiction and, and then you got, you started to get better. Now, what do you do today? What does today look like for George? Yeah. You know, it, it's, especially recently, you know, I, I dove a lot, I, I dove heavier recently back into my program, right? Because I realized that I was taking a lot from, from others, you know, whether it be, you know, AA or, you know, my therapist, whatever it was, you know, my friends, and I wasn't sort of reciprocating, you know, and I wasn't giving, you know, what I could back to people who needed it, just like I needed it early on. So really, my, my biggest thing is to, to be available, to be responsive, um, you know, to, to sort of just be the best I can in, in sort of like being a role model and letting people know that, look, we're, we're, we all go through things in our lives, you know, there are stories so much, you know, more painful than, than ours, you know, and there are stories, you know, so much less painful than ours. Um, so everyone sort of perceives pain and adversity in a different way. So it's my responsibility, you know, as, as a person, I feel like, you know, and not just someone in sobriety, but as a human being to let people know that, Hey, look, if, if you need someone to talk to, if there's a way that I can like be of service and, and help, um, I would like to do that, you know, and I'm like a lot of, you know, addicts and alcoholics, I, I can be very selfish and I can constantly focus on myself. Um, but I know that the biggest thing that, that I can do and the best thing that I can do is to give back, you know, and that has really been the paramount sort of, um, cornerstone for me in, in being able to, to make it worthwhile, you know, to make these changes and to be able to sort of be like, Hey, you know, I, I can give this back to someone else in whatever capacity I'm capable of doing it if they want the help. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's such that. an important thing to even make that point. I mean, it's just so true that we, that we have to use you're, those experiences. Yeah, and you're of service and you're like in your vulnerable and letting people know. I think that when people know they're not alone, and know people know, like I, like I know you were probably too young to feel this way, but like when I lost my dad, I only wanted to talk to people who lost their dad. Like I felt like they were the only people that could get me. When you're going through something and somebody has gone through that exact same thing, there's so much comfort in that. So, you know, continue, even by coming on here and sharing that with us, like we hope somebody hears that and finds some comfort and peace and, you know, see some solution and hope for their life. Yep. And, and that, that's really at the end of the day, it, it it's what it's about, you know, because uh, none of us who are, you know, in this podcast right now, you know, did, did this on our own, you know, so we, we have to, if, if we don't give it back, then, then someone's really missing out, you know, on uh, potentially a life-changing experience. You yeah. Know, so. That's sort of the coolest part about sobriety too, that we get to, we get to give back what we've, we've been given and we get to guide people who are going through our same path and who are earlier on than we are, we get to guide them through the process and help them understand who they are, understand what makes them tick and understand the type of life that they can have if they just are willing to kind of give themselves this opportunity of recovery. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. And that's the best thing about, you know, have, having our podcast for us is the inspiring stories we hear, the challenges we hear people that they, you know, they walk through, they go through, they struggle through and come out the other side and then have like, more purpose and more fire for life. And it's just super inspiring. So thank you. Absolutely. And th thank you guys for, you know, allowing me to, to, to share it because it's, uh, 
it, it feels great to be able to sort of like reflect. I haven't thought of some of these things in literally years, you know, and to sit here and to even be able to, to be vulnerable about it and just talk about it and, you know, and think, you know what, maybe, maybe, maybe what I went through isn't so uncommon, you know, when there are people who have gone through the same things that I've gone through and maybe they don't know a way out of feeling the way that they currently feel, you know, and hopefully someone sort of hears it and says, you know, that it's possible, you know? That's awesome. That's the hope. That's why we're well, doing Blake, this. Yeah, definitely. Blake, we have our, our special um, part of the podcast. Yes. You want to share it with Georgie? Yes. Oh, I'm sure he already knows because he's listened to an episode, which he was smart, <laughs> unlike a lot of our guests who don't. <laughs> well, um, I, sent, I sent him it. I sent it to him. No, I did practice. I did my homework. I did. <laughs> why, wait, why, so why did Georgie get special treatment? You, know, you don't send it to anybody else. Um, I don't know. I just, cause he had, he seemed nervous, which you don't sound nervous at all. And I wanted to bring him comfort. I was like, here, listen to this one. This is our most listened to episode. So. Okay. Yeah. Put, put the pressure on him and making him listen to the most popular episode that we've got. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. I mean, dude, I just want to say like, before we, we jump into this part, um, it really meant a lot to me that you did share all that and how vulnerable you were. And I hope that you're okay after talking about, I know it can be, you're kind of scratching a scab there, even though it's probably healed a long time ago. So whatever you need afterwards, you need to talk or whatever it is, feel free to call or, or do whatever you got to do. But I hope that your story resonated with a lot of our listeners in the way that it did with me, because it's not easy to make me get emotional. I don't know why, whatever it was about your story triggered something. Cause I still have my father. I still have, I, you know, I just, I don't, I don't understand it necessarily. So maybe it's something I need to dig into, but for whatever reason, it just, it was just such a powerful story to me, man. And I, uh, I really thank you for giving me that moment. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the last piece that we got here uh, is a little segment that we like to call let it out every day. We all face minor adversities. You know, we're talking some big adversities on the overcoming adversity podcast, but every day we all face as human beings, minor adversities. And sometimes a problem shared is a problem cut in half. So we like to give our guests as well as ourselves an opportunity to let it out. So George, what is bothering you today? Something that annoys you, something that frustrates you, something that's going on today that you just want to let out? Uh, you know, for, for me right now, it's school, you know, and back to my story, you know, I didn't graduate when I was at Temple. You know, but since I got sober and, and since I've been down here, I've been chipping away. So I'm, I'm only four credits, I mean, four classes away from my bachelor's at this point. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's great, but it's extremely frustrating, especially with a full-time <laughs> job and, and all those things. And of course, I took two classes that are, you know, requirement majors, but are extremely frustrating classes. So right now, you know, I have a project due Friday. Um, I have a quiz coming up on Tuesday and my professor's like one of those guys who like takes himself being a professor way too seriously and his workload is completely unreasonable, you know, so it's oh. playing, a, playing a lot of catch up right now with, with stuff in school. I'm sure you can relate to that. You know, you guys can relate to that. It, it's just not, uh, it's not fun right now, but you know what? It's, uh, I didn't get to this point in my life by not sort of seeing things through. So that's all it's about just, you know, toughening my skin up a little bit and uh, fighting through it. But that's what's really grinding my gears right about now is schoolwork. It's really grinding my gears. <laughs> it's funny. I just told Amanda, like, right before this call that I have 
my weekend was ruined because of school this weekend. And then this coming weekend, I have an even larger assignment due that's like 10 pages as opposed to the two-page assignment that I had this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And my whole weekend's gone coming up. And the teacher sends out an email just sort of letting everybody know that, hey, by the way, I'm a really tough grader and don't expect me to go easy on you. And it's like, <laughs> like why did you have to say that? Like, why, right. why add that extra pressure? Why are you taking this so serious? Salt in the yeah. wound. Right. So but that's not my let it out. Uh, but I'm going to let Amanda go first. Amanda, you go. Are you sure? Yeah, go Okay. Um, and on the school tip, definitely just suck it up and do it. I had, you know, I had my daughter um, was one when I went back to finish my bachelor's. And so I had a one-year-old, a full-time job, uh, a 10-year-old. So, you know, you definitely can do it. And I believe in you. And don't let anything stand in your way. Just make time. Sacrifice, you know? Um, my let... My let it out is, um, listen, I have my own firm beliefs in many, many things, but like I am literally so over political arguing. Yeah. I, I, I just can't take it anymore. Um, I, I just want to, you know, I was emotional today at the gym thinking about, I really wish I lived in a world where like everybody was equal and everyone cared about one another. And every, I mean, maybe I'm like a hippie in that mentality, but I just want love back. You know, I feel like there's so much hate and um, so much diversity between people. And I just want everyone to shut up on social media because no one cares, you know, about any of that stuff and people fighting on there and saying nasty things. So that's my let it out. It's like, listen, you can believe who you're going to vote for for president. That's fantastic. You know, have things you stand in and believe in, but don't be nasty to people. And don't think that really that either candidate gives two craps about you and your life, you know? So, um, you know, that's it. Just like chill out one. people with politics. <laughs> that is a great one. That's a great one. Partly the reason why I deleted Facebook, just because I could not stand all the divisiveness and knowing what was going to come this year with election time. It just was like, it was going to be the cherry on the cake. So I got, I just had to get out of there and delete my Facebook. It was no longer serving me because the people on there, it's like a cesspool of life on there of just the nasty people having to fight like, I've never understood this whole idea that you can't have an educated debate with somebody or try to open your minds up to understand somebody else's perspective. Oh, and yeah, said, no, there's none of that. No, it's just a pure, like, I'm right, you're wrong, it's black and white, you don't see it. And it's like, that's not how life works. <laughs> right. And I'm firm in my beliefs, but I, I still can like somebody and be friends with somebody that doesn't like the same person for president as I do. Like, hello. <laughs> yep. We live in a world <laughs> of extremism, unfortunately. Man, what is my let it out? I, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe because of COVID, I've been stuck in my house and I haven't, don't really have anything to complain about at the moment. Uh, to let out. I just feel... But you're not eating. You're not eating. I'm letting that out. Ah. Need to eat. Yeah, that's more like your let it out than my let it out. I'm okay. That is my let it out. <laughs> I got two for us today. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I, I think that I don't have much to let out at this point other than just the general frustrations that we're all feeling when it comes to this COVID situation, I'm frustrated with my gym schedule. I'm frustrated with not having enough time in each day uh, to do things. Uh, but other than that, I, I don't have much to let out. It's kind of just taking it a day at a time right now. 
I'm dealing with things as they come. So I, for the first time, I don't really have much to, to complain about, which is very unlikely, unlike myself. Well, the let it out is not a complaint. It's a let it out. No, you guys were complaining. I don't, it was <laughs> Oh, please. I think yeah. I heard you chime in on both. <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much. I mean, look, both of your topics bother me. Not, not, not because <laughs> they bother you, you. It's, I agree with you guys. Um, you already let it out for me. We'll, we'll just stick with that. Thank so, Georgie, thank, thank you so much, brother, for coming on, on the show with us. And I, we look forward for our listeners to hear this. I think it's going to be a really powerful story for them to hear. And I think so many people are going to relate to it. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. It, it means a lot. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it means a lot to me. So you guys are awesome. And we'll, we'll be talking soon, as we, we do frequently anyway. But, um, yeah, yeah you know, I hope someone gets something out of it, you know, and Thank you again. You guys do such great work on this podcast and just in general, you know, so I'm just glad to be here. Anything you want to plug? Anything you, you want to chime in about and people can find you or anything you want to plug? Yeah. Um, I think uh, <laughs> Amanda dropped my Instagram handle, I think, earlier. George, <laughs> if you guys want to follow me on Instagram or something like that, Georgie Roper. But outside of that, um, no, no, I, I don't think so. But okay, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Cool. Well, we're on the same page today. Go go for it. We are. Well, where people can find us, is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Okay. So people can find our podcast on all podcast platforms. I used to be just Spotify and Apple, but now we're everywhere. Um, You can find us on our Facebook page, which, which only I see because Blake's not on Facebook, at Overcoming Adversity Podcast. We also have an Instagram account, Overcoming Adversity Podcast. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Amanda Marino, Blake on LinkedIn, Blake Cohen, and Next Level Recovery Associates is our company. And um, we love working with individuals, families, and corporations, um, you know, helping people with addiction issues. She said it. And if you guys are enjoying this podcast, it truly helps us for you to go ahead and click just smash that five-star button on the review section and leave us a nice review. Say something nice about me because my self-esteem needs it. So I rely purely on compliments from people. So oh God, <laughs> uh, say something nice about me and Amanda and our guests as well. So thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed episode number 26. Later. I want to break free.